This is Digital Health Today, episode 48. I think it's important for all of us to keep in mind how we're influencing our gut with our diet and with our anxieties and with um, our lifestyle choices and, and that the environment is very, very important and it has a direct influence on not only early in life, but even later in life. It's directly impacting what diseases we're developing and how we feel about our own human health. Welcome to Digital Health Today, the podcast focused on the leaders, innovators and technologies transforming healthcare today and tomorrow. Find us online at digitalhealthtoday.com. This episode is brought to you by DocSF, the digital orthopedic conference bridging digital health and clinical orthopedics. DocSF will be held in San Francisco on Sunday, January 7th, 2018. Join world-class leaders in healthcare in this jam-packed meeting and enjoy a 30% discount. Just visit docsf.org and use discount code DHT30. That's docsf.org and use discount code DHT30. Welcome back to another episode of Digital Health Today, the place to be to get the insights of leaders working to make the healthcare of tomorrow available today. I'm your host, Dan Kendall, and this is episode 48. This episode airs after the Thanksgiving holiday in the U.S., and that means if you're listening to this in America, you may have indulged a little bit. And with more holidays on the horizon, that's likely a pattern that's going to continue for a few weeks until the New Year's resolutions kick in. I'm sure a lot of us think carefully about what we eat and the effect it can have on our body. We all know that if we eat junk, we feel like junk. We also know that our mental state affects how and what we eat. When our mental health isn't great, like if we're stressed out or have some anxiety about a big presentation or a deadline... This affects how we digest our food and how we feel. But what if the reverse is also true? What if what's happening in our gut literally affects not just our physical health, but our mental health as well? And what if we could reprogram our bodies to fight off disease, overcome allergies, reduce risk of developing disease, or even improve our mental state just from what's going on inside our gut? Well, this is happening, and our guest today is here to give us some insight. In this episode, we dive into the microbiome. This is the genetic material of all the microbes, the bacteria, the fungi, the protozoa, the viruses that live in and on the human body. Estimates vary, but it's believed that there's between four and six pounds, that's two to three kilograms, of these microorganisms in our bodies. That's more than an average brain. And with tens of trillions of microorganisms in each of us, and at least 1,000 species of bacteria consisting of over three million genes, there's a lot of research to do. Our guest today is Aza Gadir. She's a scientist working on the immunology of food allergies at Harvard University and Boston Children's Hospital. She's here to tell us about some of the early and the most recent developments and how the data we're gathering can help us develop new treatments to existing conditions and prevent developing others. In addition, she's currently serving as a scientific advisor for the startup Adeo Health Science, a company focused on translating food allergy research into trusted products for parents. Aza was introduced to me by Daisy Robinton, who's also a researcher at Harvard, Daisy spoke to us in episode 23 about gene editing and explains CRISPR-Cas9. If you haven't listened to that yet, go back and grab that episode on digitalhealthtoday.com forward slash 23. Oz and I recorded this episode in, I think it was early October or thereabout. And at the time, Oz explained that the product from Adea Health Science, the company that she advises, was just weeks away from launch. Well, true to form, they did launch the product. And as this podcast goes live, I'm pleased to announce that you can go online and get it now. She explains what it is during the interview. Spoiler alert, it's a baby food that introduces eight different allergens to infants. But I did want to let you know that the product is available. The company, again, is Adeo Health Science. You can find them online at adeohealth.com. That's A-D-E-O health.com. 
And their product is called Inspired Start. That's inspired-start.com. Don't worry about writing down those URLs. I've put them in the show notes. So if you're on the market for baby food, just go straight to digitalhealthtoday.com forward slash 48 and get all the links to everything we discussed on this episode. In addition, I've also embedded the video that we talk about. It's Rob Knight's TEDx talk. He presents some mind-blowing research about the microbiome, and you won't want to miss that. Again, go to digitalhealthtoday.com forward slash 48. While you're on the website, please take a minute to subscribe to the podcast on your favorite platform and join our community. Download any of the materials there and you'll join thousands of digital health innovators around the world who are working to improve and transform health. It's free to do and I look forward to welcoming you there. Now, without further ado, let's jump into the conversation with Aza Gadir. Aza, thanks so much for joining me. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. I was really excited about having you come onto the program because one of my favorite guests so far has been Daisy Robinson, who is a friend of yours. And and part of the reason I enjoyed that podcast with her so much is that when I first heard her talk at Wired Health over in London in March of this year, she took a very complex subject, CRISPR-Cas9, and described it in a way that I thought, wow, this is brilliant. I, I understand how this applies and why this is so important and why the the innovation community needs to be aware of this, why we need to have this conversation. She put me in touch with you just a few weeks ago, actually a couple months ago now, and said that you were definitely the person to talk to. So I'm really excited about this conversation because I think you're also going to educate me and the audience about something that's uh, very important and something that everyone needs to be aware of. Yeah, I hope so. The microbiome. <laughs> exactly. So let's start with, uh, first of all, just a little introduction of yourself. I know you're based in Boston, where Daisy's also based, but your accent indicates that you're from somewhere else. Where are you from? I grew up in northwest London. Well, it's actually quite close to central London. But yeah, I went to school there and university. Um, and living out in Boston was my first time not living in London. And how are you finding so... the American environment? Boston is obviously very unique in American culture, but uh, how you find it? Yeah, there? it's, it's, it's great. It's like, it's a, it's the medical mecca of the world, right? So it's the best place to be. Some in other parts of the world might argue with that, but certainly I yeah. think that it's up there in the, the, probably the top three or five, depending on where, where someone lives who might rank it. But certainly if you're from Boston or if you're living in Boston, you would rank it as number one. I can appreciate that. Yeah. I like being in Boston. It's great. It's, it's, really great being in an environment where there's so much innovation happening. And it's very inspiring when you're in the lab to be able, when you're exposed to so many people who are doing very innovative things in multidisciplinary fields, it's, it's really great to shape your thinking and to help you not lose focus of the bigger picture of the work of what you're doing. Like, why is it that we're looking at food allergy and microbes? And we're not just focusing on the tiny little pathway that we're focused on and rather contextualizing it. Um, and I, I really like being here and and feeling like I have that um, environment around me. So Aza, I'd like to start with the basics here. Can you start off by first of all defining what is the microbiome and why is it important? So um, the term microbiome, it refers to bacteria. So it's bacteria that shares the human body space with us. So it's, these are organisms that can function in a common soil way, which is they just sit on our surface and don't do anything symbiotic where they're helpful to our health or also pathogenic so in some cases some of the bacteria that you have in your skin if you suffer from a disease or you're immunocompromised or don't have an immune system for any reason these bacteria can be pathogenic and attack you so the term microbiome just generally refers to the collective genomes of all of these microorganisms that sit on our surfaces when you and i spoke a few weeks ago you sent across some information that would help me to increase my knowledge and one of the videos you sent across was a tedx talk with rob knight I'll include a link to that video and embed that in the show notes of this episode. 
one of the things he talked about is the tremendous diversity that exists within the microbiome. Can you share a little bit more information about that? So what Rob Knight was talking about in his TED talk was that there are four different types of microbiome. So there's the oral microbial community, which sits in the mouth. There's the skin community, there's the vaginal community, and then there's the fecal community. And the fecal community is representative of what's going on in your gut. So it's reflective of the gut microbiome. So when we talk about the gut microbiome and fecal, it's often the same thing. Um, and so what he's found was that different regions of the body have very different distinct microbes. So the microbes from someone's gut and mouth, for example, if you compare them, can be as different from each other as what you would find between a coral reef and the desert prairie, for example. So like a few feet in your, hu in your human body can make the biggest difference. And it's as different as like hundreds of miles on Earth. And so what he did at UCSD, which is where he's based, um, is that he sequenced the DNA of the microbial communities in different parts of the body um, from over 250 healthy volunteers. And he turned all that data into readable maps. And what they reported was that when babies were first born, their gut microbiome resembled. So when they looked at the fecal matter um, from newborn babies and then wanted to monitor them up to the age of four or five to see how their gut microbiome shifts, what they reported was that as a, when a child is born, their gut microbiome resembles that of the skin or the vaginal canal, which is what you would expect. And then as these children get older, their fecal microbiome starts to adapt into a typical adult fecal microbiome. So what you're seeing is that there's a very clear shift that happens in children as they get older. And this all underlies the whole theory behind the microbiome causing disease, for example, that the first few years of your life and the exposure that you have and the environmental factors that you're exposed to can completely shape and impact what diseases you develop as you get older. He also pointed out that there's a lot of similarity in your DNA, that there's 99.9% .9 similarity between individuals uh, in terms of their DNA, but only 10% of similar microbes between individuals. He talked about that and about how, for example, that our genes have become, they're incredibly stable. If you want to compare the microbiome field to the genome, our like genome is incredibly stable and has already been, and has always been stable, whereas the microbiome has under, undergone like extremely radical changes. And it responds really easily to shifts in our diet, whether we use antibiotics, how sterile the environment that we live in is. Like sometimes it's a difference of whether you start living in air conditioning and you hadn't previously. Um, and so that's why this field is actually really important, because all this data together is indicating that we need to that the microbiome needs to sit hand in hand now with genome analysis. And it's important for us to start sequencing our microbiome, like to predict patterns of disease and to predict how, how well we'll adapt to where we live, for example. Yeah. And actually, to that point, it, it, in some ways, sampling the microbiome can be far more. Uh, it can provide a lot more insights. One of the examples that Rob Knight gave was that by sequencing the microbiome, they're actually able to predict within 90% accuracy about whether someone is obese or not. Exactly. Whereas with genetic testing, it's only about 60%. Yeah. So let's talk about how, as children are developing and the, the first few years of life, that can really uh, indicate the immunities or the allergies they develop. Tell me what you're working on in terms of your research and in terms of food and what children are exposed to. So um, most food allergy is actually acquired in the first or second year of life, which indicates, again, that the early childhood exposure can have prof like profound long-term 
health consequences. So I don't know if you've heard of the hygiene hypothesis, which is two words that get thrown around a lot in regards to human disease. And it basically stipulates that microbial exposures can play a a critical role in the development of tolerance against allergic diseases. And that any alteration, including changes in the flora in your gut, can underlie the development of those allergic diseases. So the role of the intestinal microbiota, so the, the bugs that you have in your gut, is starting to be more and more appreciated in relation to food allergy. Can you give me an example of what you mean by that? So if you are born by cesarean, so I'll give this example of children that are born by cesarean tend to be born sterile because you're cutting the stomach open and you're pulling the child out into a sterile environment, which is why their microbiomes tend to resemble more that of the skin. Whereas children that are born vaginally, their microbiome will resemble that of the vaginal canal. And it's generally now being more and more anecdotal data that's now being put hand in hand with microbial sequencing, finding that children that are born by natural birth are actually much better protected against developing allergic disease. So all of this is evidence that there's some form of relationship there between the microbiome and and developing food allergies. And more recently, a study has been published that showed that actually sequencing the gut microbiome early in infancy shows that as these children get older, you can identify distinct microbiotic signatures in children that develop different allergies or different diseases. So the work that I'm doing. Um, I'm currently working on clarifying the mechanisms that underlie the food allergic response. So I'm looking at why certain children develop peanut and milk allergies and other children don't. And I'm using probiotics to do that. So I'm taking bacteria that have been previously reported to be good for you. So good bacteria versus bad bacteria, giving it to mice and seeing the effects and the impact on food allergy and whether they develop food allergic responses. Okay, let's let's pick that apart a little bit. So you say yeah. that you're doing this work on mice and it's in relation to, to children and the allergies that develop. So tell me more about that. Yeah, so it's um, different models of food allergy that we have in our mice that we'll induce in our mice um, and we'll use different allergens. So we put the bugs in at different points during the development of the food allergic response and then we look at how the bugs can impact disease. And that's a technique that's now being adopted worldwide where people are trying to look at whether using these super probiotics, so these distinct bacterial communities and putting them in different processes of disease, seeing how you can influence the disease and if you can change disease pathology. And there's been a lot of reporting on this, um, most notably actually with um, C. difficile, Clostridium difficile infection, and also with irritable bowel disease or Crohn's disease. Tell me about that because that's one of the pieces that I read about in the information that you sent across, and uh, that's something that's received a, a fair amount of, of attention. But I think it's really important mm. to understand about how that's being treated because we hear about probiotics and they're advertised, and you can get them at the supermarket, and people are saying this is good for gut health. But this isn't just about you know having a, a healthy gut. This is actually about curing disease. Uh, can mm. you tell me how that's actually? being manifest in terms of what sorts of therapies and you know, tell me how that works. This whole field was somewhat born out of the whole concept of fecal transplantation. So taking poop from one person and giving it to someone else um, and seeing whether that can skew disease. And I'll give you the example of um, Clostridium difficile or I'll call it C. difficile. So it's the most common cause of infectious diarrhea and it's much more common in people who need to take antibiotics over a prolonged period of time. And also the elderly just tend to have a higher risk of getting it. 
And so the infection spreads in hospitals and nursing homes really, really easily. And in 2013, a study was carried out that did the first randomized control trial involving fecal transplantation. And it compared just taking fecal pellets from someone who had a C. difficile infection and had beaten the infection. And then they took fecal matter from that patient and gave it to other patients that were suffering from the disease. Um, and what they found was that they had to end the trial early because the doctors realized that it would be unethical to continue because the patients that were given the standardized protocol of treatment, which was antibiotics. So these are patients with C. difficile were given antibiotics. They less than third, a third of those patients were able to recover from the disease and with the rest of the patients were doing really badly. And it was compared to 94% of those that got the fecal transplant who all did really, really well just after one single treatment with the fecal matter. 94%? Yeah. That's amazing. Yeah, it was huge. And so now, I mean, it's almost a standardized treatment for C. difficile where there are a lot of centers that just offer it as a treatment option. But I think that there is a certain like gross factor to it that turns off a lot of people, which is why now the field wants to understand more what it is in the poop that was protecting, like what was it? And a lot of studies were done and a lot of analysis was done and they found that it was definitely the bacteria in the poop that was protecting and which bacteria it's still unclear. So that's where there have been like a lot of companies that have um, sprung up and startups that have sprung up in this field, trying to look at um, different parts of the poop and which part it was that was protecting these patients from the C. difficile infection. So that's at one end of the spectrum, I would say. I don't know if that's at the very extreme end of the physical side of it, but a, another application is around transplanting fecal matter from lean mice or obese mice and changing the actual physical state of the, these new mice. Can you tell me a little bit about that, that research, how it was conducted and what the, some of the results were? Yeah, so in 2006, they found that if you transferred gut microbes from mice that carried a mutation that caused them to, to be obese, so you had these mice that had the obese mutation and you compare them to mice that didn't have the obese mutation. And they took, um, they found that the mice that received the, tra the transplants, whether they had the mutation or not, became obese themselves, despite them eating the same amount of food as the other group. So they compared that to then transplanting fecal matter from lean donors, so lean mice, and whether you had the obese mutation or not, these mice were becoming leaner. So the authors actually hypothesized that the microbes in the obese mice were able to extract more energy from food than the microbes in the lean counterparts, and that's what was causing it. But that was the first study to show that you could actually transmit a disease trait from one animal to another through the microbiome, which is why it was so powerful. We'll dive back into our conversation in just a moment, but first I wanted to tell you about an exciting upcoming event that is dedicated to catalyzing the adoption of digital health technology and clinical orthopedics. It's the only one of its kind, and it's a great one. DocSF is the digital orthopedic conference and is supported in part by the Department of Orthopedic Surgery at the University of California, San Francisco. DocSF will be held just before the J.P. Morgan Healthcare Conference in the beautiful city of San Francisco on Sunday, January 7th, 2018. This year's focus for the innovation competitions will be artificial intelligence, virtual reality, and augmented reality. The keynote dives into the future of sensors and clothing, and the various talks by world-renowned speakers will cover robotics, automation, and cybersecurity. 
There are also special sessions on leadership, policy, and design thinking, developed with content partners such as IDEO and BTS. Now you might be asking, why is this conference exclusively around digital orthopedics? Well, implementing digital technologies in an integrated vertical like orthopedics is more likely to affect change than targeting the entire healthcare sector at once. This conference isn't just talking about change, it's focused on moving the ball forward by targeting the key leaders in healthcare who are positioned to make change happen. This conference attracts top professionals from the medical device industry, investors, entrepreneurs, and payers. In short, it brings together all the people who get stuff done in healthcare. Hashtag GSD. Head out to San Francisco for this conference and meet many of the guests that have been on this program, including Dr. Daniel Kraft, Nick Adkins, Professor Shafi Ahmed, Dr. Justin Barad, Jamie Edwards, and of course, the founder and chair of DocSF, Professor Stefano Bini. And as a listener of this program, you can enjoy a 30% discount. Visit docsf.org and use discount code DHT30. Tell them you heard about it here. Again, that's docsf.org and use discount code DHT30. Or simply follow the link from the show notes of this podcast. Now let's jump back to the conversation. So that's two examples of how this is impacting, how the microbiome impacts physical health. You've got the C. Yeah. diff application. You've just got this study that talked about uh, obesity and the way that the, the, these mice were utilizing food and, and how they were eating. How about relationships between the microbiome and mental health? Has there been any correlation or any study there about how the microbiome is actually potentially impacting, impacting mental health? Yeah, so the microbiome has been implicated for depression and for bipolar disorders. And we know that there's a very, very intimate relationship now between the brain and the gut and that our intestines are acutely responsive to shifts in our emotions and our mental states. But now we know it's also a two-way street. So it's not that it's just how we think that's influencing our gut. It's what's in our gut that's actually influencing our thinking. Um, and this apparently superficial relationship between food and microbes is it's incredibly profound because it means that there's a co-evolution happening in the human body over thousands of years where maybe the brain, which has historically been thought to be immunoprivileged, so that there was no immune system in the brain. Now, we know that there's bacteria going up into the brain. We know that there's an immune system in the brain and that it's actually influencing whether people will develop these mental health issues. I think you got to talk to Daisy a little bit about it because she's now doing a lot of neuroimmunology research, which is very cool. So it's looking at the relationship between the brain and the immune system. And there's an entire area of this field that's sprouting now looking at interactions between bacteria and the immune system in the brain and whether that can predetermine disease. Wow. Okay, so these little single-cell organisms that are living all over our body have a lot to do with a whole range of health issues, uh, from mental health. I even read that it was that it potentially could have implications around autism, and uh, you mentioned depression, all the way through to things like C. diff and and inflammatory bowel disease. So. What does this matter to the tech startup community? I mean, obviously, this the science is really accelerating rapidly. But what what sort of th impact is this having to companies that want to develop new technologies? So I think that there's a lot that can be done in this field, and there have been a lot of startups that have sprouted doing different things in this field. So I think that in the next few years, we're definitely going to see microbiome therapeutics emerge as a novel class. Um, and that there's, that's pretty evident because recently you've seen a lot of big pharma investment that's being 
put into this technology um, and these startups. So I'll give you an example of a couple of the startups in the field and what they're doing just to get an idea of where the field has been moving. But for example, there's AOBiome, which is a startup which is directly focusing on the skin microbiome. Um, and they're looking at how the skin microbiome has been altered. Um, and they're looking at ancestral or keystone commensal organisms that are helping to maintain skin health. So they have, they, their whole theory is that acne and eczema is the skin equivalent of irritable bowel disease, for example. And that because you have a dysbiosis in the skin microbiome, you've got um, all of these diseases now sprouting up like acne and eczema. Um, and so they're looking at putting back specifically nitrogen fixing microbes, which are a type of bacteria into the skin to see whether you can alleviate some of these conditions. Another company that I think is what they're doing is quite novel and quite cool is a company called Symbarix. And they're looking at um, and they've identified a specific enzyme from gut bacteria, which is responsible for toxic side effects from some steroids or like some cancer drugs. And so what they found is that if you eliminate that enzyme, um, you can actually reduce the symptoms of diarrhea that some of these cancer patients get when they start taking these drugs. So they have an early stage drug at this point, and they're trying to optimize it and looking at alle alleviating the drug-induced diarrhea. So it's another way of looking at it. Um, but I think that the field of, the micro of microbiome therapeutics is definitely at a tipping point because... These drugs, whether they're directly probiotics or like bacteria being put in a bottle and then giving them to someone and trying to prevent disease, or whether you have these other companies that are looking at enzymes or they're looking at um, putting in specific aspects of the bacteria and trying to like impact certain taxa overgrowing. I think that this field, there's just a lot of potential in it for what can be done. And you're actually advising a company there in Boston. Is that right? Yeah. Can you tell us a little bit about what you're working on there? So um, I'm currently advising a startup called Adeo Health Science, um, and they're a company that are focused on providing science-based solutions to problems that parents can face. So the first product that we have is actually a food allergy related, and it's um, launching in a few weeks, and it's the only baby food that's designed for early introduction of eight common allergens. So the whole product was born from some findings that, that early sustained consumption of allergic products was actually great for preventing the development of those allergies later in life. So, you know, I'm sure that you could attest to this for years and years. If you were allergic to something, it was avoid, 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 you know, and allergists were like, stay away from peanuts and you would go on planes and they'd have like the peanut with the X through it and you weren't allowed peanuts anywhere near whoever was allergic. But now we actually know that we're supposed to be doing the opposite, that if you have a likelihood of being allergic to something or if you are allergic to something, you should actually try and take it in really low doses and retrain your immune system to be okay with it and tolerate it. Wait, 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 wait. Okay, so hold on. You really got my attention now because uh, we yes. deal with this uh, <laughs> as, as parents. Uh, you know, I've got a child who is diagnosed as celiac. This is not just uh, a yeah. fad of wanting to be gluten-free. But actually diagnosed celiac, and now you're and and people ask me all the time: Is this a condition that she's going to outgrow? Is this something that yeah, that, um, you know that that will change over time? Tell me this again, because that just seems that seems very counter to everything else that I've been hearing. Yeah, through... that we've been told. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So um, a few years ago, a researcher at King's College London, Gideon Lack, noticed that there in Israel there's a peanut snack that a lot of young children eat called bamba and they'll eat on it and they'll suck on it. Um, 
And he realized that the incidence of peanut allergies were actually very, very low in Israel. And so he wanted, he started a study where he wanted to look at early exposure to peanuts to see whether you could prevent, if it would have any impact in the development of peanut allergies in these children. Um, and what he found was that actually it did. So in high-risk children, so in children that are born cesarean or have taken antibiotics early in age, or they already have family members that have peanut allergies, if you give them peanut um, in different formats, but a specific um, peanut amount early in age, you could actually prevent them from developing peanut. So it was reducing the incidence by up to 80% of peanut allergies in these children that would have normally developed the allergy. Wow. And so that... That study revolutionized the field a little bit because it confirmed what a lot of suspicion was, which was that we, we shouldn't be avoiding the allergen. We should be retraining our body. So now oral immunotherapy is a therapy where if someone's already allergic, you give them very, very low dose protein. Obviously, with the, your doctor would do this. Um, you give them very, very low dose um, amounts of whatever they're allergic to, and you gradually increase it very slowly over time. And you can actually... Um, retrain the body to be used to that allergen or to stop being allergic to that. Um, the only problem with it slightly is that these children have to continue to take the allergen like it's a drug. So, you know, if you're allergic to peanuts and once your body gets used to the peanut, you have to keep taking the peanut every day because there's some evidence that if you stop taking the peanut, you could go right back to being allergic. The name of the company that you're advising is Adeo Health, and you said their product's coming out in a few weeks. What is that product? Can you tell us a little bit more about what specifically that is and how people who are listening can go about getting that? Yeah, so um, it's a baby food because the typical question is you're supposed to introduce these allergens to the child as early as four months old, but children don't eat solids or start eating solids until they're about a year old. Um, and so... This is a type of baby food that you can get that has all these eight different allergens. So it's peanut, soy, egg, milk, fish, um, amongst others. But it's eight of them and they're squished it together into a, a baby formula. And you can give it to the child to start exposing them until you can wean them to solid foods. Um, and you can see it on the website. So the, the company spelled A-D-E-O. And it's um, if you go up on the website, website they, they have the announcement of when the product will be launched. And you can actually purchase it directly from there and refer it to your allergist. Okay, so it's going to be launching uh, sometime in the fourth quarter here uh, of, uh, of 2017. And it'll be available for purchase through the website? Or are you going to be selling it through Amazon? Yeah, so it's through the website. You'll be able to purchase it. Yeah, I think you're going to have a lot of traction with this because this is a real concern for a lot of you know, parents of young children about how to, to manage their uh, immunities and, and try to introduce them to things to help ensure their long-term health. What sorts of things do you expect we'll see over the next few years about children like my own that has, uh, that's been diagnosed with celiac or uh, children who you know, are in their you know, pre-adolescent years and have nut allergy? What sort of things are going to be developed, do you think, for them over time? So I think that um, over time, we might actually be able to answer this question of why certain people get food allergies and others don't. What are these environmental factors? And obviously, I'm biased and um, I'm going to talk about the microbiome. But I, I think that we're going to start to identify specific bacterial communities that children that develop allergies have. And I think that we, we're going to start to be able to design probiotics that you can give to people that are lacking certain bacteria. And I think for these children, you'll be able to um, shift their, micro, their microbial communities to pre prevent them from developing disease. 
And it's it's a very it's very exciting. I think the feel. I mean, I think it's very exciting now that we know just how distinct these microbial signatures are for children that have different diseases. I think it's the the field is just going to explode in a couple of years as our techniques get better at analyzing the data and as we collect more data. What should the rest of us do? So I think that the most important thing is that we need to stop thinking of ourselves as distinct from the microbi the microbes that have colonized our bodies so we're not distinct entities from it and i think it's the field has changed a lot whereas before um immunologists or scientists didn't necessarily value anecdotal data as much as they do now we now understand the impact of diet and the environment and i think the microbiome is um the data that we're collecting there is proving all of this and it's it's the gut microbiome is being impacted by the diet and by the environment and by stress. And so I think that it's important for us to keep in mind our life choices, to limit how much antibiotics we take, to maybe get our microbiome sequenced if you're seeing any big differences in your health and try and look for correlations in how your your microbes are changing in your gut um, as the state of your health changes. So you've given us a couple of really interesting startups. Um, What else can we expect to see in this field as the science continues to develop? Yeah, so um, Rob Knight, who we talked about because of his TED Talk, co-founded a not-for-profit research-based initiative to understand the American microbiome. It's called the American Gut Project. So they're collecting a lot of data from as many people as they can to see um, what correlations they can come up with or like which bacteria they can flag. Um, so I think that as we collect more data, we'll actually be able to maybe even see biomarkers of disease. And, and this is actually a really big take home message that I think is very cool that like, if you think about it, both fecal and urine, so waste is a completely non-invasive process of monitoring human health. If we're able to harness it, you know, like if we manage to pick up cancer markers or markers of any other disease or or even Parkinson's, you know, if that can be detected in, in fecal matter um, by looking at our bacteria, that would be really, really powerful. Listen, I, I wish you a lot of success with Adeo Health and with all the research that you're doing and any companies that you advise, I encourage people to reach out to you if they have something interesting and get your feedback on it. Thank you. Aza, there are six questions that I'd like to ask every guest. Do you have a few more minutes for me? Yes, of Great. course. Great, Aza. Can you tell me a saying, quote, or phrase that motivates you? Yeah, so the main quote that sticks out for me is a quote by Jonas Salk, or Jonas Salk, who's the person who discovered the polio vaccine. And it's what people think of as the moment of discovery is really the discovery of the question. And I think this quote is, it's just, it's really inspiring to me because I think it's important, especially when you're in research, to pause, reflect, and make sure you're coming up with the right questions. You might be interested in the disease, but you realize that you're approaching it the wrong way. So I think that's why that quote motivates me. What advice do you have for others who are working to innovate in healthcare? So I think if stumped with a problem, don't underestimate the importance of multidisciplinary collaboration. Don't be afraid to invite scientists from other fields, designers, et cetera, to the table for a discussion to gain maybe a different perspective of what you're facing. What's a book that you recommend for our listeners? So I'd recommend In the Blood by Steve Jones, which is a book that arguably brought me into the scientific field um, because he is very, he's a very good scientific communicator and he um, looks anthropologically at genetics, evolution, psychology and medicine. And the book is just, it's very, very relatable. So I'd strongly recommend it. Well, what is a cloud or mobile piece of software that you recommend to our listeners? 
So I use Evernote, which is a application that it's like a note making application, but I have it on my iPhone and on my laptop as well. And it just allows me to like write up my lab notes on my computer and it directly trans and even put photos and, and insert like annotate around and it, it goes right into my phone as well. So it's a very important day of my day to day. And if you're checklist orientated, like I am, I'd really, really recommend it. If I gave you a check for $5 million for you to invest in health technology today, where would you invest it? So obviously personal interest, but I would invest it in better hardware, actually, and diagnostics for the microbiome field. Because at the moment, when you donate a stool sample or if you're collecting stool from a mouse or from anything, you have to immediately deposit it into a freezer because if it sits out for too long, you can get bacteria overgrowth. Um, and then it's no longer an accurate snapshot of the human condition, which can be really, really frustrating if you're working on the microbiome. So I would invest in better technologies to collect and quickly analyze bacterial composition of the gut. That doesn't exist then? It does. I mean, at the moment, it's no, it doesn't. Wow. Okay. An opportunity for all you innovators out there. And last question is, we make a contribution to a charity in appreciation of your time on the show. What charity have you selected? And can you tell me a little bit about what they do? Yeah, so the charity is the Lightyear Foundation, which is a scientific charity that's devoted to changing public perception of science through promoting scientific knowledge and understanding um, in young children, and also particularly in disadvantaged children or disabled children as well, where um, sometimes teaching science isn't seen as um, relevant and it's viewed as being too difficult, whereas the Lightyear Foundation helps create the scientists of tomorrow and it uses pioneering techniques to make the, bring the, make the classes alive and keep the children excited and keep them exploring. Excellent. Well, thanks for recommending them. It's lightyearfoundation.org. We'll make a donation in your name, and we will include a link to that in the show notes. Thanks very much for nominating them, and hopefully other people will be inspired to do the same. Aza, well, thanks so much for joining me, and I really appreciate you, you coming on the show. Thank you. There you have it. That's Aza Kadir, researcher at Harvard University and scientific advisor to Adeo Health. Be sure to visit digitalhealthtoday.com forward slash 48 and connect with Aza on LinkedIn and Twitter and visit the links to the resources and companies we discussed. There's also that great TEDx talk by Rob Knight that you won't want to miss. While you're there, please take a minute to subscribe to the podcast, and it only takes a few seconds to leave a review in iTunes. That really helps to let others know what you're getting out of this podcast and helps to grow the digital health community. Many thanks to our sponsor, DocSF. It's a great conference organized by Stefano Bini at UCSF, and it's coming up on January 7th. It's focused on digital orthopedics. It's diving deep into VR and AI. Visit docsf.org and get 30% off with a discount code DHT30. There's a great lineup of speakers, including Nick Adkins, Shafi Ahmed, Jamie Edwards, Daniel Kraft, Matthew Holt, and those are just some of the speakers who have appeared on this very program. I plan to be there as well, so reserve your seat, and I look forward to seeing you there. If you'd like to be a partner of the show, please get in touch with me directly. We have some great innovation partnership packages available coming up for 2018, and I'd love to talk with you about it. Follow me on Twitter at HealthTechDan and follow the show at DHealthToday. Thanks for listening, and until next time, keep on innovating.